This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. When you are faced with life's challenges, it's easy to lose track of what's important, get stuck in your thoughts and emotions, and become bogged down by day-to-day problems. Even if you've made a commitment to live according to your core values, the real world has a way of driving a wedge between you and a deeper, more meaningful life. The gift of being present is becoming increasingly valuable in these uncertain times of conflict and chaos. It's never been so important to live flexibly, with more meaning, and with a deeper understanding of shared struggles and our inherent humanity. ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, is more than just a therapy. It's a framework for living well. It helps us accept. It teaches us to make a commitment to what we deeply care about. Valeria Telles interviews Diana Hill, the co-author of ACT Daily Journal, Get unstuck and live fully with acceptance and commitment therapy. Diana Hill, Ph.D., is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Santa Barbara, California, where she provides therapy, high-performance coaching, and training to mental health professionals in ACT. She is a co-host of the popular podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock, which has over 1 million downloads, where she has interviewed leaders in the field of psychology, mindfulness, and wellness. She's a regular teacher for the Mindful Heart programs and Insight LA, and is passionate about integrative health, homesteading, and parenting with intention. She is the co-author with Dr. Debbie Sorensen of ACT Daily Journal, How to Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Meet Diana at drdianahill.com. Here's the interview with Diana Hill. In your own words, who is Dr. Diana Hill? Well, I am a human first (laughs) with many different roles. So uh, I'm a mom, I'm a psychologist, and I also um, am a daughter and a friend and and have many different roles. But I really see my role as being a human that's here to help folks live more aligned and vibrant lives. Would you call that the purpose of your life at this time or something different? Sure. I think the purpose at this time is really about um, living out values. So for me, living out my values in my own life as uh, in the different roles that I offer in terms of a therapist with my clients, being present, being compassionate, um, giving them space to decide for themselves what their values are and how they want to pursue those values, those personal chosen values in their life. So a question that I often ask, not too many people lately, but I'll ask you, do you see a difference between values and beliefs? Well, in ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, the therapy that I use, values are sort of 
a little bit different than beliefs in that values are more about actions that you take. So a belief may be something in, you know, in your heart or in your mind, but values are really how you live that out in your day to day life. So if I was watching you, um, throughout your day and say you said something like you value compassion, what would that look like when you're with uh, your partner or when you're with your child or when you're um, out in the in the world? What would that look like? So I see values as maybe beliefs in action. What an interesting answer. I never heard it that way before, but makes a lot of sense to me. And that's interesting that, yeah, I did mention off record self-compassion, self-love. It's something that I value. But this is something that I learned to value actually throughout life. Or maybe I always had within me that um, intuitively that that was something important that I valued, but I didn't know how to act it out. I didn't know how to put that into action. So let me start with this question, the open questions about self-compassion. What does it look like from your perspective, Diana? Well, I see yeah, I, I, I see compassion as having two parts to it. And this comes from some of the work of Dennis Turch and Paul Gilbert of compassion having the first part is acknowledging that suffering is happening or acknowledging that you're experiencing pain. And the second part is doing something to alleviate that pain or that suffering, taking care of yourself. And for for self-compassion to really come to fruition, we need mindfulness, right? We need to be able to be aware that we're experiencing something difficult. Many of us move through our lives numbed out or shutting off or distracting from pain, which is just a very human thing to do. Evolutionarily, we're sort of designed to do that. But with emotional pain, with psychological pain, that can have um, some long-term uh, consequences to it, right? So the first part is, I would say, acknowledging, being mindful and being present. And then the second part is turning towards with care. So very much like a child that may have injured their knee, rather than running first for the Band-Aid, we sit with them and say, where does it hurt? Tell me about it. What happened? Tell me the story. And then what do you need? Like, what is it that you really need? And that would be asking that of ourselves. What is it that I really need right now to help Kristen Neff has talked about the three components of self-compassion that I really, I like her work in terms of mindfulness being one of them, as I mentioned, kindness being another one. And then the third one is common humanity, which is the, that you aren't alone, that, that many others struggle too, and that when we're in that place of suffering or that place of um, emotional pain, knowing that you aren't alone, just that in itself you sort of be your own person that's sitting next to you and know that others are with you um, helps a lot with alleviating the suffering part. Is it possible to have compassion for others before we learn to have compassion for ourselves? A lot of people have different ideas on this. And I actually think it can be a gateway because um, I like I like Paul Gilbert's model of compassion. He talks about the flows of compassion. And Debbie and I write about this in Act Daily Journal, where compassion can flow three ways. We can have compassion for ourselves, as I just shared. We can receive compassion from others. And for some of us, that's also another thing that's hard is when, when you're hurting to say yes to help, you know, to receive compassion and care. And then we can give compassion to others. Sometimes on, on a really hard day, 
when we can't give a compassion to ourselves, it's like that just feels, you know, sometimes I'll work with folks that are really depressed and really, really hard on themselves. If we start with what does it feel like to love your dog? Or what does it feel like to have, you know, compassion for your friend? You can start to activate the brain areas and the body area, the body systems that are involved in caring, because there's large parts of our brain that are involved in threat and drive, but there's also large parts of our brain systems that are involved in caring and nurturing. So if we start with caring for somebody else, maybe then we can start to know what that feels like. And then we can do, use the boomerang of like, what if you were to take that same caring feeling that you have towards your dog, even just the feeling of like placing your hand on your dog or your cat or whatever your pet is, and could you place your hand on your own heart and feel your own heart beating the way that you would feel your child or your friends? And that's how we can do the U-turn of compassion or the boomerang of compassion. Seems like we all do that especially women, or maybe everyone. That's how we start that journey to self-compassion by caring for others and then returning to ourselves. And I wonder a lot of times, and I ask the question here, why is it so challenging for us to love ourselves and care for ourselves first before doing that for others? Yeah, I think that there's there's many complex factors that contribute to that. I mean, I think in a lot of ways um, we live, if you're in the West, if you're in the U.S., you live. we live in a very individualistic society where um, actually it's sort of a boot, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like not seeing the interconnection or the interdependency of, of humans and actually that we are much more interconnected and interdependent than we ever knew. And if the pandemic taught us anything. Hopefully it taught yeah. us that. <laughs> <True>. right? um, <laughs> yes. So I think one is, you know, cultural um, influences. There's also our early childhood. Um, if we have, um, you know, had been parented or in environments that uh, really told us that being compassionate is weak, being self-compassionate um, won't get help you get ahead. Uh, sometimes we have beliefs that being self-compassionate means we'll lose our edge. And what the research is overwhelming amount of research that shows quite the opposite, actually, which is folks that are self-compassionate actually can persist and, and experience um, more resilience and more grit during times of struggle. They have, um, you know, they're able to not take it quite so personally when they when they have a mistake and see that that's just the, the process of learning. But I think that um, a lot of it has to do both with um, what we what we've the stories that we've come to believe. And I think it's helpful to take perspective on those stories and ask, are they really helpful? Is that really effective for me in my life? And do I maybe want to shift to a different way of being and living that um, may actually be more effective in the long run? Let me ask you a few more warm-up questions, Diana, before we talk about ACT, your book and ACT. Inner peace, what is your understanding of inner peace? How would you describe someone who has inner peace? Well, in my 20s, I got a chance to go study with Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village. He's a Zen master who was in exile um, in France. And his story is an interesting one because he actually experienced a tremendous amount of trauma. He was in exile. He had to run from his homeland to develop um, this monastery to go live in. And he, to me, is the living embodiment of inner peace, right? Of how, how does one experience so much pain 
and suffering and then transform it into so much good. And it really was in his presence, what I observed was living from a place of kindness and living from a place of just this moment of just this moment. He would, when he would give a talk, he would pause and he would drink his cup of tea and then put it down and then start talking again. And it was just, even that was like full of mindfulness. We would have silence from, you know, dinner to all the way through the next day to breakfast. And I do think that in our modern day environments where things are so busy and there's so much that's just, we're consuming so much information that we're consuming so much that can activate our threat system just instantly. It can be hard to find a sense of inner peace, but for me, some days inner peace is just pausing and feeling the temperature of the air on my skin, feeling love or care or being present in this moment. Um, and it's, it can be something that isn't, I don't necessarily see it as something that we like achieve, like it's an award you put on your wall or your diploma <laughs> right. inner peace, but it's rather something that we cultivate over time and that we can return over and over again, no matter where we are, if we're in the grocery store in line or at the airport or washing our dishes or with our child or with a friend that we can all tap into something that's already been there and what Thich Nhat Hanh would say, our true nature, our true nature is really to be at peace. Yeah, well, I love your wisdom. Yeah, the way you explain that is just, I mean, it's, yeah, this is it. Going back to it, knowing how to go back to it, even if we lose balance, some people call it balance going extremes, but we, knowing the way home is, yeah, is what I call wisdom. And then inner peace might be that, um, what you described about being okay with everything that has happened and is happening and might happen. Yeah, that's, uh, to me, an empowering state of being, if we can get there, not as a destination, but just as a practice, right, Ayana, in a way. It seems like everything is a practice in a way. Yeah, it, it's really, I think, letting go of a struggle. It's letting go of the, the tug of war with our with whatever's happening in the moment and the tug of war with our own selves. And so, yeah, being able to let go of that tug of war, whether it's um, physically struggling with ourselves in terms of our, you know, difficult sensations we have in our body, just making space for all of our experiences, the good stuff and, and the hard stuff. Um, and then eventually turning towards it with a, with a kind hearted smile, you know, like welcome, you know, just like welcoming ourselves to enter into the present moment and feel that, feel that peace that's here. Let me ask you two more questions, the warm-up questions. What do you feel or think is the purpose of the human experience? Well, that's hardly a warm-up question. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. The purpose of the human experience. I yeah. mean, I think probably someone else could answer that way better than, than I can, but that's my own self-critic coming in. So, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think the purpose of the human experience ultimately is to see that we aren't individuals living these small lives, but to really see and feel and embody um, that you're part of a greater whole. And um, to feel that throughout our day, but also to feel that at the end of the day, you know, sometimes they will talk about asking people that are dying what you know, how, what they wish they had done differently. And it's, it's never something like, I wish I had more Facebook followers, or I wish I wrote that book, or I wish, you know, 
I took that job. I really don't think that's where people go. It's, it's, I wish I spent more time with the people that I love doing the things that, um, really bring me satisfaction and joy and make me feel like I'm, I'm contributing to the world. So, so main purpose of the human experience is to feel connected and to contribute to that connection and receive that connection, that flow of compassion. I love your wisdom. It's coming from that place of not just of knowing, but embodiment of, I call them fundamental truth. So it's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And my last warm-up question is about healing. What is healing to you and what are some of the misconceptions about it? Mm. Well, I, I interviewed, I, I have a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock that yeah. I, I co-host with some other folks. And um, I interviewed Helen Neville on the podcast in summer 2020, and she is um, part of the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective whose commitment is really radically healing racial trauma. And when I asked her about healing, one of the things that really stood out to me is that she talked about healing being about past, present, and future. And so healing is, is what she sort of described as acknowledging the past and not shutting ourselves off from the past while also being able to be in the present and have beginner's eyes, like a beginner's mind to what is happening in the present that is influenced by the past. And I don't even mean like our personal past. I mean, like our ancestors that epigenetically we carry in ourselves, right? Their experiences, right? Um, And then the future, which is also part of the healing because the healing that happens in the present transforms the future for our children and for each other. And I really appreciated that because I think a lot of times when we think about healing, we think about fixing and healing isn't necessarily, it's a not, it's not about fixing. It's about being able, sort of, you imagine you're healing a broken arm. It's not fixing the arm. It's to be able to have that arm be usable again and workable again. And it may never be quite the same and that's okay, but it can be healed because the, the memory of, of the brokenness or the, hurt or the hurt or the harm may always be sort of in there in that arm. Sure. But yeah. the healing it is being able to use it again and be able to live with it. So you wrote the book, Act Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. You and Dr. Debbie Sorison. Talk to me for a moment, Diana, about the inspiration and the intention of writing this book. Sure. Well, Debbie and I were friends first, and then we became podcast co-hosts, and then, and then we became co-authors. And so, first, I mean, I would say the first inspiration is friend to to work with something on somebody. But we're both ACT therapists, and ACT is a modern approach to psychology that incorporates both um, sort of the behavioral science of what we know about behavior change and sort of all that research base. Um, of psychology with some of the concepts of acceptance and mindfulness and value. And ACT has been um, sort of skyrocketing over the last few decades, especially in academia, but there hasn't always been um, a transmission of these principles to the general public. ACT has very much been used for specific disorders or conditions, but what is Russell really showing in terms of um, this approach is that it's beneficial 
for human flourishing, you know, for things like um, post-traumatic growth, for things like being um, being able to maintain uh, health behavior changes or work performance. It's being used in the workplace. It's being used with parents that when you practice what's called psychological flexibility, which is the goal of ACT to become more psychologically flexible, you also become a better parent and there's spillover effects onto your family. So we really wanted to take some of these principles and just break them down, unpack them, make them digestible, and really have people be able to learn these six core processes of ACT, apply them in their daily lives. And really with hopefully the benefit um, of, of many that some folks don't want to go to therapy or therapy is inappropriate, or that's not where they're at in terms of even needing therapy, but they do are and are interested in the aspects of human flourishing that they can still apply to their lives. I love this idea that we all can be open to healing or to finding this a new way or way of thinking differently, changing perspective and, and living this meaningful life. And I often wonder why some of us choose to do that and some of us will never will. They'll show no interest. Do you have some ideas why some of us don't choose to heal, although we need it? Sometimes it's just um, the crack where the light, you know, the light gets in, you know, that that sometimes I think um, it takes willingness to be aware of the discrepancy. And so I would say the discrepancy is, wow, how I'm living my life is out of alignment with my values or the discrepancy is I have barricaded myself so much into these avoidance strategies, these strategies to try and keep me safe or protect me, but that are also um, preventing me from moving out into the world and, and pursuing what I care about or having a sense of purpose and meaning. And I do think that sometimes pain and being able to be aware and conscious of that discrepancy can be the crack that lets the light in and can be the crack that we can then step into. And, and it does take willingness to go to to do that. Um, and everybody's different on their on their um, path to that. I mean, certainly if folks are listening to this podcast, they're not one of them. <laughs> so, right, right. But right. you may be thinking of your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law or your cousin that you just wish you could change. But ultimately, it starts with ourselves, right? And um, and doing some of this work with yourself, it will spread. It is it is a good kind of contagion. Yeah, and it is right. And that's interesting. I hear that over and over again about pain being this doorway to this willingness to heal which is sad truth, isn't it, Diana? That we need pain in order to, to move from this space to another. Why can a conversation like this be them? And sometimes it is, as you said, but it, it's often not the case. Well, I was just going to say, if we look at things like the pandemic, how many big, massive changes mm. happened really, really rapidly, yeah. <laughs> like things yes. that would be, have yeah. been normally taken decades to yeah, do, true. because the pain was pretty intense, whether right. that's the racial trauma that right. really got exposed or systems of oppression or the pain of losing people that we, you know, that, right. you know, people had to figure out ways to change and shift their lives or the pain of working from home, people had to figure out ways and to get flexible. And so, in that sense, if we look at, um, you know, flexibility and psychological flexibility, the opposite of um, getting rigid in the face of pain or getting into spaces of um, experiential avoidance when we're facing pain. Psychological flexibility is your ability to acknowledge that pain is part of life. And it's very much sort of 
if you follow the four noble truths of Buddhism, right? Life is suffering and there's a cause to our suffering, which is the re- you know often the resistance to what is. And with psychological flexibility, it's your ability to stay open and present and then orient yourself towards what matters most in this moment, even when the pain shows up, because ultimately that's that's going to be what happens when you're in a you're in a conflict with your partner and you want to shut down or you want to get into your pattern of attack or, or defensiveness or withdraw to be psychologically flexible would be opening to the pain that's in yourself, practicing self-compassion, while also acknowledging that pain too towards your values of how do you really want to be in this moment? What is it that you really care about? What kind of partner do you want to be in this conflict? Your work is is an integration of psychology and spirituality. Would you say that? I, I would say that my spiritual practice has very much influenced me throughout my own life and does show up in my, in my psychology or my approach to psychology. I don't, um, I don't require spirituality to be part of the, you know, the practice, but I, but it's definitely informed. And even in ACT, there's some, you know, there's like resonance of these wisdom traditions, right? And it's sort of like, well, wait a minute, ACT that from the, you know, wisdom traditions or, and, and so, but actually, I think what you find when you kind of boil down, whether you're boiling boiling it down in a, in a research lab looking at the science of psychology or you're boiling it down in, you know, thousands of years of contemplative practice, you get to some some like basic understanding of human functioning. Right. And um, and the depth of, of what it means to be human. And, and they'll be very similar, I think. Um, but yes, I do have a, a strong spirit, personal spiritual practice and it's influenced a lot for me personally, as well as influences my work. I see that with the core principles of ACT, I see be present being the first one that really yeah, tells me that <laughs> being present it sounds very spiritual. So with being present, then the second practice acceptance, which is another one, know your values, take perspective on self stories, step back from your thoughts, take committed action toward what and who you care about. And then the seventh one, the self-compassion that we have been talking about. So would you like to talk about any other of these principles, Diana? that we have not explored? Sure. I think um, one way to think about those those different processes that you just talked about is sort of like six sides of a Rubik's Cube. And they all kind of influence each other. So you start working on being present and then all of a sudden you'll start to notice your values show up, right? So if you get present in your life, you become aware of what your values are. Oh, this really matters to me, so right? Getting, yeah. Even just getting present with eating, all of a sudden you start to care more about what you're eating and how, how that food got to your plate. Right. Um, and then you start to pay attention to your values and then all of a sudden pain shows up because pain and values are sort of joined at the hip. They come together. Steve Hayes, who's the co-founder of Act, says pain and values are two sides of the same coin. And so when pain shows up now, all of a sudden we need this other side of the Rubik's cube, which is acceptance. right? (laughs) So you can see how you kind of just like as if you were moving around a Rubik's cube, you work on one side and you work on another side. Um, And then ultimately working around these six core processes develops what's called your psychological flexibility. And in many ways, just like my, my kids have Rubik's cubes and it's if they solve the Rubik's cube, it's kind of a bummer because then the Rubik's cube 
on the shelf and no one's allowed to play with it. It's like, nope, that would solve. Don't touch it. But if we think about our own lives as being in process, Hmm. that, that we are not, you know, we're not intended to get to some end point, but rather we're in process. We can start to think about these six core processes as things that you can flexibly move around and you can turn back to over and over and over again. Um, one of the ones that's a little bit different than traditional therapy is the one about thoughts and the, the word that's used in ACT is called cognitive diffusion, which is actually kind of funny because it, that is a made up word. Every time I would write cognitive diffusion when writing the book, it spell checks me yeah. <laughs> Just perfect yeah. because yeah. our thoughts are kind of made up anyways. So, right, right, right. <laughs> um, But in ACT, we take a little bit of a different approach with thoughts. Um, We're not necessarily trying to change thoughts or say a thought is true or not true. It's more about being able to get a little distance from your thoughts and take perspective on them and see, is this a helpful thought or not a helpful thought, but that our thoughts don't run the show. We can can choose thoughts that are helpful to us so that are workable for us, um, that humans just have a constant commentary going on in our minds all day long. And um, we get to take a little bit of space from our thoughts is the practice and act. The way it is laid out in the book and the way you speak of, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's not a destination, but all has to do with flexibility, adaptability. I call the dance, this movement of life, just dancing with it, with whatever it comes, the way it comes. So it resonates very much true to me. And on thoughts, I highlighted something here that I read somewhere, might be some of the pages in your book. You say, let go of trying to control your thoughts. That is something that we often very much try to do. I mean, we try to control everything from what I see. (laughs) That's where um, suffering comes from too. But not trying to control thoughts. So talk to me for a moment about negative thoughts, uh, negative self-talk. Instead of controlling them, how would you work with a patient that is trying to do exactly that, to get rid of them and and to control them and not have them at all? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is just to know that the more that you try and control something, there's actually a phenomenon in psychology, which is the paradox of thought control. It will come back stronger. If you've ever gone on a diet and tried to not think about carbs. <laughs> You've had this experience. Sure. It just is all day long. That's all you yes. can think about. Right. But, um, but how, you know, how I think it can be helpful is, is start to label it, give it a name. Mm. You don't need to control it, but you can name it. Right. That is my self-critical thought. And you could actually literally give it a name. You could say that is Judy mm. <laughs> yeah. or yeah. that is my you know, my high school, whatever, tennis coach. But I think that, um, you know, giving it a name helps you be able to just identify it and 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 not let it stick. Yeah. That it's like, that's my self-critical thought. And I will tell you that for me, my self-critical thoughts tend to get loudest when I'm doing anything that is new, anything that is hard, <laughs> and then anything that involves someone else that's like accomplished and good <laughs> at doing it. So that's when my, that's when actually I need a compassionate um, passenger, but that's when my self-critic shows up. So when she shows up, I can just remember that, oh yeah, that's her. And rather than arguing with her or trying to control her or, you know, doing some, you know, fancy experiment with her, I can just say, that's what she, that's what she tends to do. She's trying to help. Sometimes our, our self, most, our critical thoughts, they're, they're kind of there because I think they're going to be helpful, but then I can orient my, my, myself and my mind towards 
okay, what really matters here? Who, who would be, what would be a more compassionate voice that may be helpful for me to turn to? But then also, what do I want to do with my hands and my feet in this moment? Because sometimes we can be caught up so much in our head. If you think about sort of ourselves like a tree, we can be caught up in the branches and in the leaves and we're pushed around. But if we can get into the trunk of the tree and into the roots of the tree, then we can be more present and we can move from there. Like this is this is what's most important right now. I'm going to focus on being in this interview, even though my self-critic thoughts may just kind of like chatter around in the background, like background noise. Oh, I love the suggestion of using the body and moving because that really helps dancing, walking in nature. It goes back to that movement. Yeah. And then um, another question I have for you is something that I read also in your book. It says, get more flexible with rules being right and shoulds. So my question is, when it comes to values for us, aren't these rules? Can we be flexible with our values as well? Is that the suggestion? Uh, yeah. So I would say values are not rules, actually. Values are much more fluid than rules are because here's an example. I may value um, compassion. And sometimes, or I'll, I'll do a different one because we've used that one a lot. Maybe I may, um, I may value taking care of my body. And sometimes taking care of my body means sleeping in and getting more rest. And sometimes taking care of my body means not letting my mind tell me you should just sleep in, <laughs> but yeah. getting out of bed right. and going for a run, yeah. right? Yeah. And the value of caring for my body is mm -hmm. the same, but the behavior may look different based on the conditions of the present moment, right? And so, so values are, are um, qualities of action that do have some consistency to them, but the way in which they are expressed may look different from based on the moment to moment, based on the context of our lives, which is constantly changing. Rules are inflexible. And rules are sort of like if you had a, um, you know, you had a glass vase and, and you drop it, it's going to shatter. Whereas if you have a, you know, a silicone vase, you drop it, it's going to, you know, be able to bounce and move around and adapt. So values are more flexible, rules are inflexible. And oftentimes, rules can actually prevent us from living out our values. Because if I have the rule, I have to wake up at 5am every morning, and one morning, I really need to sleep, it's going to actually go against my value of taking care of my body. And what about this idea of being right? Isn't it attached to values in a sense of if I value this, and now I feel like there is a right way of doing certain things. If somebody else does something different, I will immediately react to that in a negative way because that's not right. I might say that. So, yeah, talk to me for a moment about that being right. Yeah, oftentimes I'll talk to clients about values being like pers like uh, favorite colors where your favorite color may be orange and mine may be blue. And blue is not better than orange and orange is not better than blue, right? And that even for me as a therapist, what it, what my values are and what's important to me should never be what's imposed on, on their, my client. They have their own values. And I would see my job is to be, you know, supportive in helping them explore and understand what their values are and then what that looks like in their life, right? So um, being right is actually one of the things that um, is a sign that you are cognitively fused. The opposite of being cognitively defused is that 
you are stuck in a belief system and have very little ability to take perspective that someone else's experience is different from you from yours and actually perspective taking is one of those other six core processes of being able to get behind the eyes of another and do our best to understand where they're coming from and that there is no there is no right given the just a variety of contexts that are shaping each and every person so yeah those are being right is um a sign often that we're we're stuck and in psychological inflexibility actually so we're almost at the end i do have a few more questions for you diana the ending questions would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book oh um Sure. I, I would be interested in reading a, reading a passage. Let me grab my book. So the book is, so the book is laid out, um, with six, well, sorry, with, um, so the book is laid out with eight chapters and each chapter will have one of the six core processes plus that seventh cross process of um, self-compassion, self-care and intentional use of time. And what Debbie and I really wanted to do was also just bring a little bit of our personhood to the book. And so while each day has a writing assignment and teaches the skill, each day often also has a little story. And the story is a personal example of how we're using these processes in our lives. And so I was going to read maybe one of the stories from there. Okay. Okay. So let me just find um, a good one to read. Okay. So this one's on committed action, which is one of the processes we haven't um talk too much about, but committed action is bringing all your values to life and committing to taking action in your life that aligns with your, with what's important to you. It's called fall on purpose. I've always been afraid of falling. As a kid, I wouldn't climb trees and never made it past the bunny slope skiing. In yoga, I conveniently step out to use the bathroom when it's time for headstands. Then I learned that falling is part of committed action. In an ACT workshop, Kelly Wilson stood wobbling in a yoga pose and said, what if falling were part of the pose? Falling on purpose was radically freeing for me. If I fell on purpose, it meant I could try all sorts of things, surfing, a podcast, homeschooling, trying new friendships. Today, committing to falling on purpose opens my life to fresh opportunities. So I guess the message there is to allow yourself to fall and fall with compassion. <laughs> Yeah, would be the big picture. Wow, very inspiring. Yeah, yes, yeah. We are often very much afraid to fail you and in falling, right? Making mistakes, even. I love your work again, Diana. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a delight and pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you again. So before we end our conversation today, I have, let me see, I'll ask you this question. What is another word for spirituality that comes to mind? I think the word just presence, being present. Yeah. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the only thing that I would change is just um have my kids with me right now instead of being on this podcast <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, I'd want yeah. my family if I were dying but um but I wouldn't change a whole lot I'm pretty satisfied with the life 
that I that I have. Yeah. yeah, beautiful answer. Every time I hear, I love that. And my last question is: What are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Mm, life is uncomfortable, yeah. and no matter where you are in your life, there's potential and possibility. Don't underestimate that. Yeah. And life is about connection. Thank you so much again, Diana, for your presence, for the work you do, how fun you are <laughs> talking about quite serious topics, let's say not serious, but deep. I like the idea that we can play and dance around these ideas and uh, for the work you do, trying to help others. Thank you so much again. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Sure. If you go to drdianahill.com, I have lots of things on there in terms of events and podcast episodes, and you could spend a lot of time in there looking into things. I do offer a free weekly teaching on Tuesdays through Yoga Soup and Mindful Heart programs that you can check out there, and my recordings are there. And then if you go to drdianahill.com slash extras, I have some free resources there um, that folks can download extra ideas and strategies to live more fully and psychologically flexible. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Diane. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Diana Hill and her work, please visit drdianahill.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.